Hello and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here with yet another round number, episode 340, and part one of my conversation with the Director of Percussion Studies at the University of Toronto in Canada and the manager of the Soundscape Music Festival, Ayun Huang. We'll get to her shortly. The upcoming major percussion item of note going on here is that the Missouri chapter of the Percussive Arts Society is holding their annual chapter day of percussion on Saturday, April 15th at Battle High School in Columbia. And if you're around, you should definitely come check it out. The event is being hosted by Neil Flanagan, current PAS chapter president for Missouri, and a few people who are involved as either hosts, clinicians, or adjudicators involve a number of previous podcast guests. Alice Pan, Julie Gaines, Alex Smith, Alexandros Fragiscatos, and Ryan Robinson, among many others. If you're in town, check it out. All right, let's get to our conversation with Ayun Huang. I'm fairly sure I'm meeting Ayun for the first time in this conversation, but it was an absolute pleasure to get to talk to her. As we discuss in this conversation, I was able to catch Ayun's performance at the New Music Sessions at PASIC 2022 of David Bethel's Windward, an incredibly inventive musical and theatrical work for solo percussion and mixed media. From both the discussions that occurred after the piece and the general good-humored nature of both David and Ayun, along with the masterful performance of the piece, I thought it would be great to have Ayun on the show. And so here we are. Ayun's been in the percussion world for quite a while. She's been teaching on the college level for nearly 20 years, while also being incredibly active as a performer and festival manager. Her performing schedule has taken her all over Canada, United States, Europe, and many other places. She's an incredibly engaging and fun person to talk to, and I knew pretty quickly that we were going to need a longer session to get to everything I wanted to talk about covered, so we're splitting things up into two parts. Today on part one, we'll discuss her work at Toronto, her PASIC performance, the Soundscape Festival, and her time growing up in Taiwan and Canada. Next week in part two, we'll get to the rest. So let's get to it. We recorded this portion of our conversation on March 6th, 2023, and it begins right now. Ayun, tell me what your percussion responsibilities and activities are at this point. I wear several hats uh, right now, um, but the main hat that I wear is I'm a professor of music um, at the uh, Faculty of Music, University of Toronto, Canada. I also run a festival called Soundscape, and we are based in Europe. Um, in the past, 16 or 17 years, we were based in Italy, but this coming year, we are going to be in Switzerland. Um, those are kind of the two hats I wear, plus my work as a creative artist. I kind of play different festivals in the summer. Uh, some of the regular festivals that I, I am involved with, uh, including the BAM Center and um, National Youth Orchestra of Canada. Tell me about getting the job at Toronto, where you were before then, and the status of the program as you were coming into the job. So before I started my job at 
the University of Toronto. I taught at McGill for 11 years. And prior to that, I had a postdoc fellowship at UC San Diego. I built the McGill program over the course of 10 years. And um, I went to the University of Toronto as an undergrad. So, and I studied with uh, members of Nexus. Um, so when my teacher, Russell Hartenberger retired um, in 2016, they had a search and they invited me to apply. I really love the community. Uh, in Toronto, the percussion community is very, very tiny, neat. And um, we're just really, I think it's a great group of people and um, people can really do different things and doesn't matter what people do. People are embraced for their differences, the musical sort of individualities, which I really admire. Um, so that's why I decided to take over the program in 2017. Yeah. Gotcha. And the Nexus guys are still around. So, uh, students are really lucky, um, from time to time, they will get to listen to Bob Becker practicing in the practice room. So, um, they have treats, musical treats. <laughs> that's great. Having Bob around is, um, true inspiration because you know bob is just an incredible artist yeah 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 i i would imagine even getting to hear i would imagine that he doesn't make any mistakes playing rags but i would imagine hearing him practice it would be like well that sounds like bob becker is playing rags oh my gosh it's bob becker playing rags i don't yeah, and, and Bob is super kind that he will give students lessons and he will come to students' recitals if you invite him and he, if he's free. It's just an um, incredible gift. Yeah. yeah. And um, and Bob is very shy. I mean, I don't know if you... Do you know Bob personally? I know I, I don't. He, he is very shy. He's so shy. You can never really kind of think, oh, wow, Bob Becker, the superstar. You know, like he's like this legendary figure. When he shows up at PASIC, he's coming yeah. out for to play the opening night concert or the headliner for the right. evening concert. And the announcer would say, here comes special guest, Bob Becker. And you see like 8,000 drummers just go nuts welcoming Bob Becker. But Bob is like super shy. <laughs> One time I was... um waiting to enter the room and Bob was practicing in this room. I was outside maybe for five minutes. So when he was done, um, I entered the room and I said, oh, Bob, I heard you practicing a little bit. He was strong. He said, you heard me practicing? I was like, yes, you're Bob Becker. <laughs> right. <laughs> I would just I assume he wasn't, he doesn't practice. practice. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> it's just there. <laughs> uh, that's, oh, that's awesome. Explain a little bit about at Toronto, how the percussion setup works, because you're not the only percussion professor there, right? Right now we have four teachers teaching in the percussion program. Um, so there is um, Beverly Johnston, John Rudolph, and Charles Settle. I'm the only full-time um, teacher. Um, the other three teachers, um, they are adjunct. Um, so 
the program sort of features a rotation of teachers. So when a student comes, um, a student is expected to work with all the faculties in the program. I run the percussion ensemble. Bev um, leads the master class, and John Rudolph teaches the orchestral um, repertoire class for the undergraduate students. And and Charles work with um, graduate students or more um, advanced students to prepare for auditions. Depending on what students like to do, um, I come up with a different sort of uh, ratio of lessons for them so to tailor for their goals. So that's how it's designed. I'm sure a lot of um, large programs probably run similarly like the one that I have. Um, but in addition to sort of the immediate percussion program, U of T also features uh, a very large sort of world music ensembles. So as undergraduate students coming through the program, especially um, most students would, um, would play in taiko drumming, African drumming, Brazilian, um, steel drum. In the past, we have also offered Korean drumming and Persian drumming. So depending on what's going on, there will be different options, um, but there are some basic rotations that most students would do. And, and this sort of diversify their perspective on what percussion is. And, and, it's, and I think for the most part, it's very good for them. Um, especially when you're an undergraduate student, you come out of high school, um, your experience might be limited to playing in the bands or um, meaning concert band or rock band. And some people have some experiences playing in the orchestra. Those three sort of summarize um, someone who's 18, basically, because in Canada, um, there's no real marching band culture. So, so when we think about in the States, um, most kids decide to go into music because they have had you know, four years of training and experiences and sometimes even touring throughout the summer with different marching bands. Um, that doesn't really exist in Canada, although I have had students who, who play in different sort of drum corps programs and they end up enrolling in American programs in the summer. But it's not a popular way of getting into percussion. It's more through the, a concert or just a rock band style. Yeah, so so it's it's really kind of through the orchestral program, concert band, or people who play drum set, um, but they also play band at school, and maybe they play piano or they play another instrument. So they have music around in their life, but they may not take percussion lessons until um, like one year before entering university. Um, some people are luckier, depending on where they go to school. Um, some teachers might say, oh, I think you're really good with percussion. Come and have lessons. Um, so that does happen. It just doesn't happen systematically like certain states in the states, like Texas or California or uh, <clears throat> some places that have very uh, prominent and very good marching band programs. Is your position then, because you're the full-time, are you, you kind of have to decide like how much 
one person takes versus another, you kind of, do you oversee the planning for a student comes in and, and you're like the person who like, they'll get to you. It maybe they'll get to you at some point because you're having them work with everybody or it just automatically, they come in and it's like, I'll get you now. And then I'll get you in like a year and a half or something like that. I always teach them in their first year. Okay. So, so usually um, a student will have two teachers. So I will um, most likely, I, actually I'm always one of the teachers. Um, so for example, all undergrads come in first year, they will study with John Rudolph and myself. Then second year, they might study with John Rudolph, Beverly and myself. Then third year, uh, sometimes I don't teach the third year, so they would just get Bev and John. And then in their last year of undergrad, I might get them back to help them with graduate school application and the recital prep. Um, I think it's important for me to teach the first year students just to help them to navigate the transition going from high school to university or even starting a new master's degree. It's important for me to work with them because as a full-time faculty, I really know how the university works much better than um, part-time faculty. So some of the paperwork and just what courses to choose, how to deal with scheduling, that can be quite overwhelming actually, yeah. I, I, yeah, <laughs> I'm sure you understand. Yes. Scheduling is crazy, right? Yeah. I mean, so like if you have percussion ensemble, suddenly one student wants to change uh, just how one piece is being rehearsed and then you will have all this ripple effect. And before you know, you spend two hours trying to find a one hour slot to rehearse a piece. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, that's very true. But I, it makes complete sense because you also want to... Um, you know, after that first year, I would assume that you're just, you're also shoring up. You see like kind of what the the holes are in someone's uh, performance, you know, game, I guess at that point, and you can kind of figure out, set the standard so that they can then flourish after that. Right. Yeah. Right now, my studio is primarily graduate students. Mm. I have like 12 graduate students and, wow. and only six undergrads. Okay. It, it, uh, and is this master's and doctorate or just master's? Um, yeah, master's and doctorate. Yeah, so we have uh, three doctoral students, and then eight master's students, and one student in um, in the diploma program, and then six undergrads. Yeah, so with this kind of shift in the ratio between undergrad and grad, um, there are some advantages and disadvantages. So the advantage is that the, the level is much higher. Mm -hmm. It's easy for the new students to know where they need to be because they can see how other people are playing. And, and then some of the events students are really happy about teaching under like teaching other students. So there's a lot of this like peer learning going on. And I think that's excellent. Mm -hmm. um, so I have quite a few TAs. So every student will get lessons, but they also get tutorials um, with the doctoral students or with the graduate students. So we have tutorials in um, snare drum and then we have tutorials in mallet instruments. So all the undergrads um, have actually a lot of time to 
work on their technique in their first two years. And then, and then as they become more independent, then they just have lessons. Yeah. Got it. Those students who are, who are grad students, do they all have assistantships or that some of them, how, how does that work? So the DMA program um, comes with TA ships. So we have a base package for all DMA students who are accepted. Um, the base package is domestic tuition plus um, assistantship. Um, then the master's students don't have guarantee assistantships. Um, so if they are um, additional TA ships that the doctoral students can cannot have because of schedule conflicts because of assignments, then those go to master's students. So currently um, there are two master's students with um, small assistantships and the, doc the doctoral students have the bulk of the creation. Got it. For those doctoral students, what's the concluding is there a dissertation, a document, a lot of recitals? What tends to be the final capstone? They, there is a dissertation. Our dissertation requirement is quite vigorous. Um, it's almost like a PhD uh, dissertation. Uh, requires like original research and ideas. I think academic writing is a big part of our selection process. Then there are three performance components. You can do recitals, lecture recitals, or recordings. I think most people do two recitals plus a lecture recital. Um, but I do have one student who did recording plus two recitals. Yeah. So everybody chooses something different. What are the facilities like there? I think the facilities are pretty good, but you know, I've visited some schools that are not in big cities, they are in rural areas. Usually rural area schools have much better facilities. Really? Yeah, so so, so right now, I'll just talk about the facilities at my school. So right now I have, I have nine rooms. Okay. Mm -hmm. But the nine rooms, like some of them are big and some of them are tiny, but they are nine rooms. So what that means is that if you just want to practice, no problem. Everybody can have a room. Yeah. Yeah. So I think in terms of just, I want to practice, not a problem. We got tons of instruments, anything that you want to do, it's possible. A little problem that we do have is not all nine rooms are together. Mm. So they, they're in like different part of the building. Because the school is in downtown Toronto. And, and I don't know um, if you have been to Toronto recently. Um, I mean, Toronto has grown like tremendously since you know our lifetime. Um, right now, it's the third largest city in North America. It recently mm. bypassed Chicago as wow. the third largest city. We are now the most diverse uh, city on earth. It used to be London. So with the most numbers of languages spoken in a city, mm -hmm. we now hold that title. 
So, so Toronto is really a city of uh, immigrants. Mm. So, so what has happened in the past few decades is that um, real estate has just kind of gone crazy, right? So, real estate in Toronto it's like San Francisco. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't think so. Any, so, so any any updating is is just really expensive. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. Expansion. I mean, yeah, basically renovation, updating buildings, new buildings in the middle of the city is just tremendously expensive and difficult. Like, for example, I visited some University of Michigan in Mm -hmm. 2018, I think. I don't remember. No, maybe earlier. Um, Right as they build their new wing of music building. Wow, that was so incredible. I was like, hi, just from like looking at all the rooms. I was like, whoa, University of Michigan has so those kind of space doesn't really exist when you are in a huge city like Toronto and probably also not really in the city like New York, where you know the real estate is um premium. Right. Yeah. Yeah, you can't. I assume that wherever you're at, you there's no going. You would have to go up, maybe. Everything if, if has anything, to go right? up. Exactly. Everything <laughs> has to go up. Nothing can sort of go this way, right? Yeah. yeah. Tell me about uh, the soundscapes, right? Is that the, yeah. the the conference or the festival you run? Tell me about your involvement, or did you start it? I mean, I'm not. I've, I don't actually know. So. Oh, okay, sure. So, um, no, I didn't start it. So Soundscape uh, was started by my friend Nathaniel May. So Nathaniel is a pianist. And I think it was like, I want to say it was 2005. He had an idea for a festival. And the first year it was him plus one participant. So there was a person who wanted to have a piece play. And, and he wanted to play it. So the person paid Nathaniel to play this piece and Nathaniel put a name to it. And that was the birth of uh, Soundscape. And Nathaniel had so much fun. He decided that he would invite his friends to join him. Um, so the second year uh, he invited maybe four other people or maybe five other people to join him in this Italian town called Cortona. Mm. They were there for maybe three years. Then in 2008, um, he moved the festival to uh, Pavia, Pavia, Italy. And I joined in 2009. So it was second year in Pavia. And in 2010, the festival got moved to this town, a tiny little town called Macanio by Lago Maggiore. So the major lake. Mm-hmm. So it's sort of the um, Italian elf. So I used to describe, okay, so nobody really knew where this was. You say Macanio, they say, where? You say, oh, you know, it's next to this town called, this is this other town nearby. This is slightly larger landmark. People still didn't know. So Wait, said, is this you know, is this north is this north Italy? Yeah. Near so the this, near the um, near Switzerland? Yeah. 
So like Lake Como-ish area. Exactly. So this oh. is how I would describe it. I say, oh, you know, Macanio is where all the poor people go when they cannot afford to go to Como. <laughs> it's the poor people's Como. <laughs> I, I'm laughing. I, I, I unfortunately know exactly what you mean. So, Como so is you, nuts. <laughs> if you say, oh, yeah, you want to go to Como, and you oh, it's so expensive. Then you say, okay, well, why don't we go over there that nobody goes? It's just as beautiful, but nobody knows about it. Yeah. So we were there for like maybe four years or yeah. five years. And one year, the New York Times did a one-page like a full page in the travel section uh-huh. about this area of Italy, you know, like your, the, sec- your secret, Ayun. Yeah, right? my secret was like completely blown. <laughs> so then after after the article came out, I was like, "This is it! All the Americans are coming. Things are going to double." Um, so maybe it did a little bit like there was one year we heard a lot more english and because usually we we will hear a lot of german mm. so a lot of german um either swiss german or german german they will come down and kind of camp um around this part of the lake and this lake the Lago Maggiore is a famous lake because depending on where you are on the lake, some of them um, are more upscale and some of them are sort of just people who live there. Right. Um, then you could, for example, take a boat and then you'll be in Austria. Yeah. Like, so so the, the, on this lake, Switzerland. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. it'll be like Switzerland. You take the yeah. lake. Oh, you take a boat well, now in Switzerland. Make sure you bring your passport, you know. So that kind of stuff. Um, that was great fun. It was hard to to get there. Mm. Um, you, you would take like three trains and bus to get mm-hmm. there uh, when we started going there. But then at some point, the Swiss built a train connecting one of the major um, Swiss Italian stations with the airport, Malpensa, because I think in that part of Switzerland, it's easier to access Malpensa than to go up to Zurich. So then there was a train line that ran through Macanio that went to Malpensa. So so the the transportation um, was changed and then that spot became more popular. Um, Right before the pandemic, we moved to this other town called Cesena. So Cesena is a little town between Bologna and the Adriatic Sea. Okay. Um, so, and he has this little conservatory that used to be the second campus of the Bologna Conservatory. So we were in residence there for two years until the pandemic um, hit. So we canceled 2020. Um, 2021 was online. And then uh, last year, when we returned to Italy, I moved the, to the festival to this little town called Bobbio. And Bobbio is this uh, incredibly well-updated medieval village mm-hmm. in uh, Emilia-Romagna. Uh, it's about an hour and a half from Piacenza. 
and also not that far from Cremona. So, so it's a part of Italy that has a lot of cultural activities and festivals. So we were there last summer and it was fantastic because the whole town, because the um, medieval village, you basically cannot drive a car into mm-hmm. the city center. And the yeah. city center is so small and everything is like a coaster. So you cannot be lost. You know that how it goes. Like you say, "Oh, I'm lost," and you just keep walking. And after ten minutes, you know, I'm back in the same spot. I'm not that lost. Oh, it's just be lost. It's fine. You'll be, you'll be back where you are in twenty minutes or less. Right. But that's what I told the participants when they came. and said, "Don't worry about getting lost. You'll just end up to be back in the same spot." <laughs> oh, that's amazing! All right. So I have a lot of questions, but one of them is, how are you finding all of these different locations uh, in Italy to switch from one to the other? I mean, when you when you started uh, kind of overseeing this, was the intent to stay at one place and then just make that a home base? Or are you like, it's just been, I kind of need to go here or I need, what, what's been the, the situation there? I think this is a difficult question, meaning okay. that depending on the time of the year, if you ask me the same question, I may have different answer. Okay. Fair <laughs> okay. So, so I think it's, it's this, um, we are always looking for a home that will allow us um, to have the best musical experience. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, but at the, at the same time, we also kind of love the idea of being able to kind of move around because our faculty members have been more or less fixed. There's a core faculty um, group that is very tight. We do soundscape mostly to celebrate our friendship. Mm-hmm. I mean, we want to spend some of, some parts of our summer together and soundscape is how we spend our summer together. So part of it is that, and and I think that's why Soundscape has lasted as long as it has, because it's really not about money or prestige. It's really about sort of building a community that believe in the same thing. Um, So so I'll just, when we left Chesena, it was because... um, throughout the, because of the pandemic, all the Italian uh, conservatories had to change their schedule. So they they used to end at the end of June. And because of the pandemic, they, they had to extend their calendar into August, into the end of July. So dates don't work. Mm-hmm. Um, similar issue has occurred in Bobbio. So, so we were in residence with a different um, event. And because the town is very small, it, it's hard for them to host two um, events at the same time. And because our faculty members are all super busy, so it was impossible for us to change the date. But now um, we move, we're moving to the Hindemith Music Center, moving to Switzerland. And um, I really feel like this is like another step up um, in terms of our festival because the Hindemith Music um, Center is a prestigious place and they have a foundation so they are subsidizing um, the festival participants. They have staff who specialize in um, sort of 
facilitating our kind of activity. So they are trained to do this. Versus before when we did our festivals in Italy, um, we had to do everything. And, and that is um, an interesting challenge when you have to <laughs> mount the entire festival from abroad. So, so for example, uh, well, but what I have to say is that I have a lot of friends in Italy from all the years I've spent there. So last year I hired uh, a friend of mine, um, Dario Savaron. So he is a professor at Milan Conservatory. He's a percussionist. Okay. He teaches in two different conservatories. So, so um, we know each other for 18 years, 17 years. So I hired him to do logistics because I couldn't do logistics from far away. So like some of the people we were working with, they don't do emails. Great. <laughs> Thanks a lot. <laughs> so, so they only do phone calls. So, okay. so it's like, I, I really needed Dario to help me. So, and he was very kind. He was very kind. And I, I would joke that, you know, sometimes I wake up in the morning, what do I do? I harass Dario. I would be like sending him texts, 10 texts in 10 minutes, one text per minute. Dario, did you do this? Dario, did you do that? So that was kind of how uh, we worked, like pretty intensely, but not every day, but it would be like bursts of activities yeah. and then there'll be nothing. And then suddenly, oh, we have to do this now. That will be, you know, 10 texts every morning and, and then that kind of stuff. That does sound like a lot of work. Uh, <laughs> I'm, glad that, I'm glad that you have someone local who can do a lot of that stuff. That has to be a yeah. nice amount off your plate, even if you're still having to text a, a lot. <laughs> yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, and I think moving to Switzerland, you know, this is another sort of home away from home that I have uh, because um, as, the, as the laureate of a Geneva competition, I, over the past 20 years, I've spent quite a bit of time in Switzerland. So I also have a lot of friends there and colleagues um, that I work with. So I feel like moving to Switzerland is a very sort of simple step for me in terms of just getting help around the region, around Geneva and also some German parts of Switzerland. Aside from it being kind of a, a place where you and your friends can come together and share experiences and, and work and, and perform together, what are there themes for it? Is there like, how does the, the kind of, what is the programming for this? Oh yeah. Kind of festival? So, so Soundscape, it, uh, it's a contemporary music festival. It, it does two things. So it's, um, we call it composition and performance exchange. So mm -hmm. half of the festival uh, features composers. So we have two types of participants. So composers, mostly sort of um, upper level undergraduate students and graduate students and some professionals. Um, they come and they write a new piece and we perform them. Uh, we premiere the piece during the festival and we make a very nice professional recording for the composers. Um, so they have a clear goal in mind when they sign up uh, for Soundscape. And for performers, we currently, we, we don't take all instruments. So we have a Piero, 
um, the faculty yeah. members yeah. is basically Piero plus percussion. So we have Tony Arnold, um, soprano, mm-hmm. uh, Marfior, violin, uh, Felix Van Cello, uh, Josh Rubin, clarinet, uh, Lisa Cella, flute, and Thomas Rosencrantz, piano. Mm-hmm. And then we have uh, Denny Martin on sound engineering. And our composition um, director right now is Carlos Sanchez Gutierrez. So he teaches at the Eastman School of Music. And then in addition, we every year we will feature a couple composers. So this year we're also featuring Tonya Ko. Um, she's now based in the UK and Judith Ring. So Judith is an Irish composer. So this is the roster for this year. Um, in the past, um, we have featured many great American composers, including George Lewis. So George was with us in uh, 2019. Uh, Chen Yi, I don't know if you know her, Chen Yi was with us uh, 2020. That's the year of the pandemic. So we did a small sort of um, edition online and she was part of that. I mean, she was supposed to come to Italy, but it ended up to be an online session. Yeah. Got it. Um, so the, a composer can come in and they, they don't necessarily have to write for an entire, the entire ensemble. They can say, I'm going to write a piece for you and the clarinetist and that, that would count, right? Like it's not, or is it expected that they have to write something for everybody? No. So it's more planned than that. So this, this is kind of tricky. So for example, it's not a free choice. So, so there are several considerations. So if I was a composer, so I have to think both, both as a festival director and as a composer and as a performer and kind of finding a right sort of meeting point. As a composer, you want to write a piece that will get played over and over again. Yep. Right? I hope so. so. <laughs> yeah. So as a composer, you don't want to write for very strange combinations of instruments that no one will play. Right. Right. That's why we see a lot of, for example, percussion quartet, because with the way things are moving, writing percussion quartet is very reasonable. There are a lot of professional ones and there are a lot of student ones that are upcoming. They are already doing a lot of quartet repertoire. So this seems like, you know, percussion quartet is mm-hmm. the string quartet of the 21st century versus, you know, string quartet has kind of plateau and kind of come to a point that's kind of quite steady. I think mm-hmm. percussion quartet is still in the stage of growing, yeah. both in terms of activities, numbers, the field can accommodate, mm-hmm. but also repertoire. I'm thinking like, you know, we'll have a string quartet, percussion quartet, uh, piero sextet, maybe piano trio. We'll have uh, pieces without specific instruments, you know, open instrumentation that people can participate and maybe some songs with lyrics, uh, with piano. So so they, I think about how to combine the different numbers of participants to make it more interesting for 
for the people who are participating, the performers, and uh, for the composer to be able to sort of reprogram their music in the future. And then the other thing that, that I have to think about quite a bit is how to actually make it happen in terms of scheduling. Because, you know, scheduling is hard. Yeah. And I love the fact that of this focus on playing the piece more than once. I, I do. That's always the thing. I don't know. I'm curious your opinion on this, but that's always the thing with PASIC is that there are so many times where there's a lot of a lot of pieces that are premiered at it in various forms, whether it's like a new music thing or if it's percussion ensemble stuff. And and there's so many times where I, I always think like I'll hear something and think, will I ever hear that again? <laughs> I, I, I like that you that there's a it seems like there's a concerted effort for you to say. You need to think about. Yeah. The third and fourth performance of this and not the, this one that we are going to do anyway. <laughs> yeah. I mean, in some ways, you know, <laughs> I think for people who play a lot of new music and premiering um, many compositions uh, a year, I think people accept that only a small percentage will become repertoire. Gotcha. It's just what's the percentage going to be? You know, I would like to see like every other piece I premiere becomes repertoire. I think that will be a huge accomplishment if I can get to that point. Yeah. 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 Oh, I think that's a good goal. <laughs> no, seriously, I do. I think that's great. Well, you know, this will this ties into what I, we were talking about before we started about you performing at PASIC this year, this really incredible piece that is part of the new music research uh, day. And I want to know more about the, or you need to kind of explain the piece and then the kind of the origin of it. This is 2022. So at PASIC, I play this piece called Windward by David Bethel. So David Bethel is a composer and technologist who teaches at the University of Southern Oregon. So David and I went to UC San Diego together. So I was a graduate student. He was an undergrad student. And after undergrad years, he went to study at UC Berkeley. And I actually was not in touch with him. So in 2010, we met at the conference and I heard actually his music for the first time. Then in 2015, I hosted um, uh, Transplanted Roots. So this um, percussion research symposium that I um, organized in 2015. And it's now sort of um, going through, um, it's now happening every other year. So I hosted, the first one, and this was at a time when I was teaching at McGill. So David came with another percussionist, Terry Longshore. Mm -hmm. And in this um, symposium, Terry premiered a piece um, by, by David that uses three projectors and three projector screens. And Terry would stand behind the screen, so you don't see Terry, you see sort of the shadow 
of Terry, and he would uh, play some instruments and he would have some gestures, and the gestures would signal different sort of iconic cultural moments, including like the last move in this piece was the 007 move. Oh, so that when it comes to the end of the piece, we see this thing that 007 would do, you know, in the title track. Yeah. Of the oh, movie. The, da, da, like when it's then, going yeah, through exactly. the, the viewfinder, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So so that's like the closing move of this piece. I and I was like so excited. I'm like, oh, this is so incredible. Like somebody had like merged like technology, new music, and yeah. sort of cultural reference that everybody can understand into yeah. a new piece. Mm-hmm. So I was like super excited. So I told David that um, I wanted to work with him on a new piece. And of course, you know, it take, takes a while. So in 20... 18, I want to say, we had an opportunity to work together for premieres So at, at the Band Center. I went to visit him first in Ashland um, before we started collaborating on the work to talk about some of the ideas I have. And, and in this meeting, I said to him that, you know, in this piece, I want to address a couple of things. And one has to do with sustainability and one has to do with working with multimedia and not having technology um, take over the live performer. And I was thinking maybe the bass drum. Mm -hmm. So I think those were the things I told him. And he was really brilliant. Then he said, you know, I was thinking that um, we can use the skin of the bass drum as the projector screen. Mm-hmm. Right, because then this immediately changes the relationship between the performer and the technology. Because we're used to seeing the performer in front of the screen, and then depending on the hole, the screen can be two floors high, or the screen can be a lecture screen next to you, looking very bad. So, depending on the situation, it does does not seem ideal, right? So you're kind of working with constraints you are working with whatever you are given mm-hmm. but but now we kind of lay it down this is very simple meaning that we're going to use a bass drum screen and that's what we have right and bass drum screen as a screen is predictable right it's predictable so so that's what we went with david currently teaches not composition but music but technology not not music technology, but like technology and the arts. Okay. So so to make this piece, he actually made a little computer. So there's a light switch in this piece, right? So this piece has technology, has live performance, then he has live has a um, storytelling component to it. Yeah. And to enter the magical world of this story one triggers this light almost kind of like the match girl you know the the match girl with the match and when the match lights up she sees this other magical world so thinking about that way for those who haven't seen this piece in in real life so i just want to give you a little bit of pointer 
on how to get there. So we have these different ingredients working together to create this storytelling, blending technology and composition and improvisation and performance together for a truly, I would say, an integrated, an integrated experience. And I think that's what's very special about David's talent. It's back in my mind now, uh, more fully about some of the, the the ways that it was kind of it was really really impressive. And one of those is that is that that there is a story that is that is being told that, but that still requires you to like a theatrical and a technical percussion aspect is kind of all built into it, right? Yeah. When we first made this piece, like it was difficult to play because I don't know how have you worked with music technology? Not very much. So so a lot of times when you work with music technology, for example, if you make a patch using Max, mm -hmm. it, it will work on your computer, but it might not work on somebody's computer because somebody might have a different computer yeah. or it has a different version of the software. Then like little bugs would appear, except you cannot troubleshoot for their bug because your hardware is different from their hardware. Right. So in the beginning, we had this problem is that everything he designed that he made works perfectly on his device, but it never worked on mine mm. because we never had the same computer. Yeah. So at one point I had an older computer than his, so it never worked, it always crashes, or like, you know, one of the men wouldn't, the arms wouldn't move, or like the dangles, and you know, oh, my man is missing, you know, the kind of, I'll be like, David, the man is missing, you know, <laughs> the kind of, you know, pentacle, you know, oh, my. after I premiere the piece, tons of people wanted to play it. But this is kind of like, you know, he has to send out the little um, computer that he made, the homemade computer, to turn the light on and off. Mm -hmm. So the little computer that he made, the light switch, it has the same function as the MIDI pedal. Mm. So you will use the light switch to advance the cue in mm. max. But so in order to play this piece, he needs to ship you this box and the light bulb. Yeah, And then you need to kind of know how to put everything together. And so <clears throat> he had maybe one other set or two sets that he made. He might have made three sets. So he mm -hmm. had two that he can ship around. Yeah, And so only like two people can play at a time. And tons of people wanted to play it, but not all the people who wanted to play it had the ability to troubleshoot. So, so it ran into some problems along the way. And so when the piece was selected for the basic performance, I told him that I wanted to make a version that's more sustainable and would overcome this idea, well, overcome the trouble that one would encounter that every time when system updates. Yeah, that's the other part that was, that was amazing about the presentation because yes, there was, there's definitely like, I think in the audience, everyone's like, well, I want to play that. And they're like, well, <laughs> not so fast. Uh, there's all these things, but so, the other part, but, and uh, I'm, I'm sorry, let me, I, cause I, cause I want to get to the other thing that you said, 
I believe that this is also you were talking about how there are works of art where if the technology is no longer useful or valid, then it's okay if that piece doesn't exist. Is that was that part of also what you were saying? So these are kind of like the two camps. Yeah, yeah, right. The two camps. So we either need to accept that a piece involving technology has a limited lifespan Mm -hmm. or we need to figure out how great art can live on by providing them a different kind of way of existing. I think those are the issues that people talk about a lot now Mm -hmm. because um, we have been working with technology since the end of Second World War. So that if you think about early works of Pierre Boulez or um, Stockhausen especially, like all the work that Stockhausen did in Cologne, Electronic Studio, those were like masterpieces that came out with he really sort of revolutionized what we thought about electronic music. And what he did was so fast and deep and enormous that even decades later, most people's sounds that they will use to produce in technology can still be referenced back Mm -hmm. to Stahlhausen. So for example, right? but 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 not going towards Stahlhausen, but just thinking about this piece that I made with David. So we had this discussion. I said, well, you know, we have to make a decision. Like, is this piece going to die before, you know, it has its proper life? That That's kind of how I felt. Mm-hmm. Because, because many people wanted to play it, but there was limited amount of circulation. How can we make this piece? piece more sustainable and give it the lifespan that it des- deserves. So that's kind of what this version was uh, for at PASIC, the 2022 version. So we migrated um, everything to this app called QLab. So QLab is a place that you park a fixed, well, you park an audio file, you park a video file. Mm-hmm. You park cues and then you step it through and then it will just kind of play a list. It's not as simple as, um, what's it called? It's not as simple as, you know, your music software on Apple, but it uses right. sort of the same concept. So, so you can park different materials that's from different platform um, into this app and file them in sequence, basically. So now the piece is, is a film, it's a film, it's a film score with an in-ear monitor. So when you wear the in-ear monitor, David will talk to you. Mm. So David will say, oh, three, two, one, hit, hit east, hit west. So he gives you some basic cues so you know where the surprises is going to come. And then so we can still capture sort of this magical moments of suddenly something is happening. Oh, how did she do that? Mm-hmm. So it's the, the in-ear monitor. It's a little bit like when you go to a pop concert, mm-hmm. you know, like, like in giant pop concerts, there's always this like little thing in the middle of the stage. And then there's a director like hiding in this thing and giving cues around the stage to coordinate all the events, yeah. 
when you were performing it, you did you know what was coming or was it he was reminding you or just saying in three seconds, that's actually when you're going to hit the drum so that it, it it matches? Yeah, it's for the timing. Okay. It's for the timing, yeah. In terms of where to hit, in the opening, it was a fixed position. So I I kind of know. I mean, I know the score. So yeah, I yeah. know the first hit is on the east. And it goes west. It goes north and south, back to the east. Yeah, yeah. He's the east. So so that I do know. But the timing, he would he would tell me the timing. Three, two, one, hit. If I remember correctly, isn't there an aspect or a part of it that it's actually, you have to do a lot of crouching? Like it's not... You're not playing in a in a standard orchestral position. It's you're like <laughs> you're you have to be like, I mean, you have to be in pretty good. I would either like good shape or like your back is not killing you today or something like that to make that work. It looked like, you know, I think it's uh, amazing that you observe that. I wonder how many people actually notice that. Yeah, it's not the most comfortable position to be practicing for a long time. I think to play is not that bad. Yeah. Like to practice for a few hours, I think that's difficult. <laughs> so so if I need to practice for a few hours, I just block the projector. Oh, sure. I mean, the reason I was in the awkward position was because I was trying to be out of the way of the projector. Right. Yeah. Yes. The thing that's interesting about the technology thing is there is a little bit of parallel with how music, just just like kind of classical music, but pop music in some ways, progresses over the years because there are for sure pieces that are very fashionable for a while and then they go away or they go away for a long period of time for whatever reason. I mean, there's there's plenty of examples in percussion literature, actually, of this being the case. It's just a more specific thing because it's, it's like, no, actually, we, we do not have that technology anymore, or we don't produce it enough to make it worthwhile, I guess. Yeah. So, they, for example, in the 80s, there were all these like, middle triggers. So there were yeah. people who owned like, marimbas and vibraphones that has middle triggers attached to each bar. Mm-hmm. So in the 80s, there were all this repertoire that was composed for this specific setup. And now people don't play them anymore because these instruments no longer exist or people don't want them. They're they're hard to move around. Yeah. Yeah. But you're right. I mean, now people want to do that. It's just like, oh, yeah, just go get a Malachat. We'll do that. Malachat. Yeah. 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 Exactly. Or or, or they, right, like what you said, where it's, you're just like, now it's a film score and you're playing to a film score and it's a different fashion than what, was the the product project before so in some ways it kind of you start off with like cutting edge technology and then Mm -hmm. once you make the piece you kind of like swing back and say okay well how far back can we go with technology to a commercialized technology that will never go away right yeah well, and, and what's also, you know, the other part, which I, I'm sh- sure you're aware of when you were talking about the Stockhausen, those recordings, is that that was like that version of a computer doesn't exist anymore. I mean, it, that it's not the same. It's not even remotely this. That all changed when the with all the, the, the microchips. Um, yeah. You know, in the 70s, I think. 
So like the hardware, so the, for example, like the hardware, the Stahlhaus that had used those analog equipment, yeah. they all produce different kind of noise when it's mm -hmm. being used. And then they became sort of a signature sound mm -hmm. accompanying the piece. So, you know, this analog noise. It's like, you know, people who love listening to LPs, mm -hmm. the noise of the scratch is part of the music. Yeah. And, and it was the same playing some of the Stahlhausen music. It's the, the analog noise is part of the piece. So so now we are kind of going back the other way. How can we <laughs> create these like analog um, uh, scratching noises with the max patch so we right. can be authentic? Yeah. Imitating the sound of the analog using digital means. Yeah. Right. I had forgotten about how, and I'm so glad you're talking about it now, but I'd forgotten about how all the, the things that it made me think about um, from, from that one performance. Um, and plus it, it was very clear that, that the two of you both get along and you seem like really cool people. Like it was like, it was very clear that you were, you were also like realizing that this is, this is also like arts, art is fun. And like, this is, you know, I mean, it was a very, it's a very deep piece, but it was also like, yeah, it's also a performance and I need to enjoy that too. Yeah, for sure. I mean, that's kind of how we all started. And sometimes it just, it's good to remind ourselves. That's why we're still here. Yeah. Let's, yeah. let's back up then. So Ayun, where did you grow up? I was born in Taiwan, and I grew up in the south, southern part of the island in this uh, city called Kaohsiung. It's a, it's by the ocean. It's a port city. Mm -hmm. And then my family uh, immigrated to Canada. Um, so I moved to Canada when I was uh, almost 18. First by myself, my I, I went first by myself with, without my family. Then after that, I went to school at the University of Toronto for my undergrad. Then I uh, studied in, in Europe for a year. I studied in Paris. Then I studied in the States, mostly at UCSD. So I did graduate studies there, my master's and my doctorate. Then I stay on for two years as a postdoc. Excellent. Then after that, I started my position at McGill. As you can see, I had a long <laughs> affiliation with academic institution. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's 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 usually how it goes in some some ways. <laughs> Did you have family members in the arts? No, I, I'm the first uh, artist in my extended family. Gotcha. So how did you, how did music come to you, whether percussion or? I mean, that's not quite true. My my mom is an artist. She is a painter. And um, when we were kids, she was very into uh, flower arrangement. Mm. And and I don't know if you are aware of this, like, for example, like in, in Japan, you can um, take exams to be certified for different levels of flower arrangement. Oh, I was not aware of it. Yeah. Know. Yeah. So so my mom was a certified uh, flower arrangement teacher. Oh, okay. and, and but when you get certified, they have like different levels of certification. So mm. so she had a teacher 
who was very advanced, and her teacher had a daughter who was a piano teacher. So, so that was my first introduction to music. I studied piano with my mom's teacher's daughter. My piano teacher thought I was talented, and she wanted me to audition for sort of special music program. For us to enter the music program, you needed to play two instruments. At grade six, I um, auditioned for the music program to enter middle school, and I was uh, a flute major and a piano minor. In the summer of my grade seven, grade seven, yeah, I went to a summer camp. It was the first international music summer camp in Taiwan. And I met my first percussion teacher. My first percussion teacher was was well, I had two. So it was David Freeman, the vibraphonist. So he was the guest artist for the festival, nice. and he was my first teacher. Um, and then, um, then it, uh, my other teacher is Mr. Drew of Drew Percussion. Oh, okay, awesome. Yeah, of Drew Percussion. Um, so I would say that this event had a profound uh, impact on my career. I think it was the first time that I met someone um, like David Freeman, who was a true artist at such a high level. Mm-hmm. And, and I heard him um, improvising. So I was hiding sort of backstage. I heard him improvising. And I thought, oh, this is so interesting he's so good when he was teaching he was very he was actually a very good teacher and he he praised me a lot which made me feel like oh yeah maybe I could do this so then um after that I started um taking taking lessons with uh, Mr. Ju then when I when we moved to well when I moved to Canada I was lucky because then I found uh, a percussion teacher very quickly. And then this percussion teacher actually gave me very good guidance. He thought that U of T Toronto would be a good choice for me because Nexus was there. And that turned out to be a good decision because um, Russell was a great teacher for me and he was very caring. So from there, I think I had a good foundation um, to be able to go on to do other things. When you start taking percussion, and that seems like that becomes your main instrument, do you do the other ones go by the wayside, or are you also still continuing with those as well? In my city, I was the first one of the first percussionists. So at school, I wasn't able to major in percussion during my um, middle school years. So I still major in flute. So I play flute and piano at school and outside of school, I study percussion. In high school, uh, eventually I switched. So I dropped um, playing the flute in grade 11 and I only play percussion and piano. And I was the timpanist for the city orchestra I was in. So in my high school years, I actually play quite a bit of um, orchestral music. Um, but I feel like my experiences playing other instruments really helped me as a musician. At the time, perhaps I didn't really realize them. I just felt I needed to have more time to, to play percussion. Yeah. But, but ultimately, I would say that playing piano really helped 
um, with playing keyboard and with sight reading. I was very keen sight reader. I enjoy sight reading. So one of the things I did a lot in high school was that I did a lot of piano accompaniment. That was something that I did for fun. Yeah. Um, something that I enjoy a lot. And I think that turned out to be very good for me in chamber music. I don't know about you, but I would say that when you are a kid, because I was the first musician in my family, nobody told me what I should be doing or not do. So, so much of what happened was actually luck and intuition. You know, sometimes you don't know what you want, but you know what you don't want. Yeah, no, that's that's important. You that's gotta eliminate important. the stuff you don't want to do. Exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, that's what I would tell students. I said, you know, maybe you don't know what you want, but you probably know what you don't want. So it's a process of uh, elimination. So I think at some point, I knew what I didn't want to do. That was pretty clear to me. So I just started not wanting to do this, not wanting to do that. I just want, so once you get rid of the stuff that you don't want to do, it, it kind of, you know, have a firmer circle that one can devote oneself to. And I think that's important. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, for people who want to do it seriously, because, you know, you know, in order to be good, you have to be obsessed at some point. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And people were really good early on is because they discover what that is early on. So they spend their 10,000 hours right. before someone else did, you know? Yeah. Well, and, and I'm glad, and I'm glad you made the point about the chamber music performance, because that is definitely the thing that's part of that is that, if you're playing a lot of piano literature and then you're going to percussion literature, the percussion literature is just going to be easier. Like it's just less, <laughs> generally speaking, there's less on the page. Um, I mean, you have the, you have the physical deal you got to do, but, but in terms of just reading, you can read a ton of lit early on, particularly. Right. And, and I think a big part of it is your training playing other instruments helped me to hear a lot of stuff. Well, yeah. your timpani skills are probably pretty solid right off the bat if you're doing all that stuff, I would imagine. Yeah, you know, like, <laughs> I mean, this this is funny. Um, most of the people I grew up with, uh, we all have perfect pitch. <laughs> so it's hilarious, right? Because <laughs> so so a couple of things I'll I'll I'll, I'll tell you couple of funny stories. So uh -huh. up to the point I was in grade 10, mm -hmm. I didn't know that people didn't have perfect pitch. I thought if you want to play music, you have perfect pitch. Mm -hmm. Because everybody I went to school with had perfect pitch. Right. But then in high school, I had a friend who was a composer and she did not have perfect pitch. And she was the, the first person to openly admit to me that she didn't have perfect pitch. And I was like, then how do you hear? I didn't understand how like non-perfect pitch work. Right, yeah. Right, because I, I only understood the world of the perfect pitch. Right. Yeah, you, you hear the humming and you're like, we all know we all know that's a G, right? You know, yeah. 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 No, I mean, no, it's, it's by, um, it's solfege. It's because yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. when I was a little kid, we were fed solfege. Uh -huh. And then solfege became the name of the, the frequency. 
So there oh, okay. was the, the the association was basically uh, well established a little bit earlier than the normal. So then then if you reference back now, you, you know you can read on uh, um, how like people who speak Pono languages mm-hmm. have a, a higher percentage of having perfect pitch mm. like through the word of Diana Deutsch, for example. I think they say that in a tonal language uh, society, like like the one I grew up in, in Taiwan, mm. um, having perfect pitch is at one out of 10. Versus people who um, grow up in non-tonal language environments, the natural perfect pitch is like one out of 100. Like the ratio is different. I don't know if the stats is correct, but it's something like that. So it has to do partially with the language people speak and how um how tone is um how different tones are well established in the years. Um, but but for me I'm pretty sure it was because of my Yamaha school training, my mm. Yamaha music school training when I was a little kid. And that's what people were doing and you know do is a do. Do is a do. Do that is do, you know. Right. So um I, I feel like most of well, throughout most of my adulthood, I try to undo my perfect pitch because you know perfect pitch is not so convenient for playing percussion. Right. Yeah. Except for timpani, and, and so for the most part, I find it to be inconvenient. And when I was in grad school, um, at some point, I was asked to teach musicianship. My the instructor wanted me to teach movable dough mm-hmm. and um, numbers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was going like, oh my God, this is going to crush me. <laughs> <laughs> I had to translate every single note yeah. <laughs> out of fixed dough into movable dough. I was like, oh. <laughs> oh, that's, oh, wow. Well, see, you can see though that it's, there are ways where that gets very, it can be a, a burden almost to have to, because yeah. you have to like get out of that frame. Yeah, exactly. I mean, when I think back now, I think I was, it's so crazy that I didn't know that I thought, oh, everybody will have perfect pitch if you're going to play music. Otherwise, how could you recognize the notes? <laughs> right. Right. Yes. Yes. Of course. I I understand your mindset from that age completely. Yeah. Yeah. But it's just hilarious. Yeah. Yeah. And we'll return for the conclusion of our conversation with Ayun Huang next week. Stay tuned. This week's rave is the 2019 film Clemency, starring Alfred Woodard, Aldous Hodge, Richard Schiff, Wendell Pierce, and Daniel Brooks, and written and directed by Chinoye Chukwu, now streaming. Sometime not too long ago, on this podcast, I raved about another film by the writer-director called Till that focused on Mamie Till and featured an outstanding performance by Danielle Deadweiler. While watching that film, I remembered that director Chukwu had written and directed this film, which I finally got to watch, and it is tremendous. Clemency tells the story of a prison warden named Bernardine Williams, 
played by Alfred Woodard, who is running a prison that carries out death row executions. While she's clearly very good at her job, it's also clear that the strain of carrying out these executions is taking a massive toll on her mental health. And the film follows her through the possible execution of an inmate played by Aldous Hodge. Throughout the movie, Richard Schiff, Hodge's lawyer, is representing his client and attempting to delay and get clemency with enormous zeal and fervor. While Woodard's husband, played by Wendell Pierce, is just trying to essentially get his wife back. Daniel Brooks arrives for one heartbreaking scene late in the movie, playing the mother of Hodge's child. Simply put, everyone is good in this movie. Chukwu's writing and directing are all very well rendered. Schiff's zeal as the white saviorish public defender hits all the right notes. Hodge plays the role of the convicted with a lot of gravity and depth, and with a lot of struggle and unease. Pierce plays the English professor husband with great gravity and depth as well, and Daniel Brooks in her one scene knocks it out of the park. Two other points I should make at this time. A special mention about the score by Catherine Bostick. It's haunting, lyrical, and features a lot of long tones and low pitches that give a sense of dread to all that's going on, particularly all that Woodard is having to mentally go through to continue on with her job. Additionally, the movie opens with one of the most harrowing scenes I can remember from a recent movie, a depiction of a botched lethal injection execution that is obviously incredibly disturbing, but also seems very true to the panic of what would happen to all involved in that situation. It's brutal. But as was the case in the film Till, Clemency is Alfre Woodard's show, and this is a career-defining performance from her. While Woodard has been acting in films for over 40 years at this point, she's frequently been in supporting roles with a few lead performances here and there. She's been nominated or has won for a lot of roles in TV series over the past 30 years, but she's rarely had the chance to showcase her talent as a lead in film. Due to the nature of this particular role, she is playing a veteran prison warden who's clearly seen and had to deal with tough things, as well as make her way in the world in a position that likely has few black women in this particular role. She takes on all that is weighing on her throughout and has to manage all of that emotion, which her character, unfortunately, is frequently unable to do. The pressure will eventually get to her. And to see all that, please, as soon as you're able, check out Chinoye Chukwu's Clemency. It's an outstanding film, well worth your time. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts and leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spotify, and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast. You can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete'sPerkPod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time for part two with Ayun Huang. Until then.